Welcome again to the Doomer Optimism Podcast. Uh, today we have a lovely panel, um, uh, which I've tentatively titled Biophysical Realities and Cultural Potentials. Uh, it started, I, I, I tweeted something, and these lovely folks um, you know, engaged in the thread, and we decided to turn into a podcast because I think it's a fascinating topic. Uh, I'll introduce the panel. So we have Nathan Gates, Craig Castle, Ellie Young, and Richard Flyer. And so I think how we'll roughly frame this conversation. Uh, first, I guess I'll have all of you introduce yourselves. Um, yeah, let's, let's start there before I move on. Let's have all of you introduce yourselves, uh, you know, two minute, something like that, uh, and then we'll go from there. So I'll let anyone who wants to start, go for it. I'm Richard Flyer. Uh, <clears throat> currently, my wife and I, we're in uh, Oahu, and um, my interest has been doing uh, bioregional ecosystem building. So focusing on building capacity in local communities by connecting nonprofits, for-profits, local government around areas of like increasing the local production and consumption of food. So that's a passion for a long time, but actually I'm more passionate about the building of networks like that. Not necessarily food, but just like how to build community and how to create I think what we need is a new culture and it's actually not necessarily new as in new values. We just have to practice the values that are important to bringing people together. So real excited about exploring cultural change at the base of societal change, starting locally, but then within every community on the planet. And this seems to be happening organically. Um, got some experience with Sarvodia and Sri Lanka um, which is a great example of how you can build a national network of bioregional ecosystems and local economies. Um, they've been doing that for 60 years and they've got a lot of uh, things to teach us in the West and uh, happy to be here. Nice, and, and um, if you wanna learn more about Richard's work, uh, we interviewed him solo uh, a few episodes ago. Um, I don't remember exactly which one, but you can find him under Richard's flyer. All right. Uh, Ellie, I'm going to call on you. All right. So I'm Ellie Young. I'm founding um, a network called Common Action. And basically, this is a, sort of a knowledge network for ex expressing the kinds of problems that we are facing in different geographical locations and then mapping that to solutions and also to like the people that are doing those solutions. So innovators um, in spaces, companies, organizations, individuals, groups like Richard Flyers and, and so on. Um, so we're really just trying to create like this, you know, large scale mapping, mapping um, capacity so we can begin to kind of see like where and what the problems are, wrap our arms around them and, and move more quickly together to address those. Nice. Thank you. Uh, Greg? Hey, all. I'm Greg Castle. Um, so I um, I have uh, some decades of background in philosophy and arts, but I've had a second life since 2014. I um, really got um, very focused on organizational theory and organizational development. I became an anarchist um, focused on consent-based organizing models got involved in a lot of related networks and discussions. Um, and uh, I've developed a lot of open source um, documents, which I call inclusive organizing patterns and systems, 
which are focused mostly on low technology practices that, that are mostly compatible with oral processes as well as uh, written exchanges, but also can be scalable with different types of technology. And at the same time, I work for Neighborhoods, which is a Holochain-based project. And for people who aren't familiar, Holochain is like um, a bunch of people's, including my idea of, uh, of what blockchains ought to actually be, um, not a, a single global supposed state of truth um, for uh, some potentially massive ledger, but a bunch of distributed decentralized ledgers that might be connected to each other in different ways and distributed apps that can be connected in all kinds of ways. So Neighborhood specifically is a project uh, to develop uh, social sense-making tools and small apps that can be very intentionally combined and customized by diverse communities. Um, so we have a model of generic tech and specific culture which is very community-based. Um, also, um, I um, since I've lived with my partner in North Metro Atlanta um, for the last six years, I've gotten very into uh, organic native plant, wildlife gardening, and began to identify more and more with permaculture in a very uh, in a very grounded physical sense. In addition to you know identifying social permaculture with everything else I do. And I'm very glad to be here with y'all. Oh, thank you, thank you. Uh, Nathan. Hi, um, so I'm Nate. Um, it's kind of a fun timing for me. Um, it feels a little auspicious to be here talking right now. It was, it's almost precisely uh, the 10-year anniversary since um, my wife and I, with our two kids who were young at the time, you know, moved east from Colorado um, to the farm that we inhabit now. Um, so it's been exactly a decade. So we packed up, we lived in Denver and, you know, had our lives there and, and decided to come back and uh, live, <clears throat> pardon me, live on her family's um, abandoned um, farmstead. And, um, you know, it's been a, it's been a process. It's been a fixer upper. Um, and it was just really why, uh, you know, just a, looking back back on it it was a hell of a thing to do you know i just opened up i'm a, a counselor um by trade and so that was how we were going to support ourselves i opened up moved here opened up a private practice that i needed to get um to full-time immediately so that we could uh you know make a living and, and did that and then have been rehabbing the farm uh you know ever since and so along the way we have um learned a great deal about living uh here um we're both emily's from here and i'm from southern illinois but it's you know to come back here um as adults and you know to make a life and to try to rehab a farm learned a whole lot and you know trying to make uh make community and make culture you know in in the grain belt and uh make a relationship with with the land that we live on um it's uh yeah, so I'm, I guess I'm feeling pretty reflective at the the 10-year anniversary, and and you know, and also to be a you know psychotherapist in a rural community too has been you know quite an experience. And I think a lot about you know we talk about change and talk about cultural change. It's like, well, what you know, what are the the messages and the learnings and the patterns of thought and the ways of perceiving the world that all of us have that keep us engaged in this pattern? You know, we're all engaged in this pattern, and how to break free from this pattern um, because our minds are very entrained to it 
um, to the very um, detail how we perceive the world around us. And um, the change doesn't happen very easily um, at all. So, and I'm fascinated by that um, change on a personal, but then also a collective scale. All right. Well, I'm very excited. Um, excited about all of your bios. Uh, I think it's going to be a great conversation. So let's let's get let's get started. Um, so I think I'm just going to not to show my own tweet, but I think I'm just going to read this tweet that kind of got this conversation started and kind of um, kind of it's where I, kind of where I'm coming from. Uh, perhaps it's a little bit more quote unquote realist than than maybe I, I am on 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 every day, but I'll go ahead and read it. Uh, so I wrote the seeming, the seemingly inexorable maximum power principle is why I am a doomer before I am an optimist. There likely won't be an integral or solar punk or whatever mass awakening before biophysical constraints grab us by the scruff of the neck and throw us into the future. Okay. Um, I wrote this tweet because I was feeling like there's a lot of kind of optimistic hopium online. Uh, and I'm seeing, you know, uh, climate change projections. Uh, I'm seeing people talking about uh, peak oil and pr probably a much lower energy throughput future. Um, perhaps not, but um, I think it's more likely than not personally. Um, of course, ecological collapse of, of various different sorts, uh, political uh, implosion uh, in the United States uh, and in many other places. Uh, so many kind of signs of what we might call collapse, uh, you know, just to put it, to put it frankly, or, or collapse of the, of the systems uh, the, in, of the industrial modernity that we've become accustomed to. Um, and so that's kind of me putting my cards on the table. I kind of think that we're headed to a very different future in, you know, in the next one to three decades. Uh, but I, I just want to kind of see what the consensus or, or non-consensus is in, in terms of, you know, what do we think that just kind of our physical reality, like what what affordances are available to us, what new challenges are we going to face in the next one to three decades? And so, if everyone just want to kind of wants to, how how are they seeing the future in this way? Um, I guess well, I can um, go ahead, Nathan. Um, you know, I, I try to cultivate sort of an agnostic attitude on that question, um, intentionally because, you know, I can, I can really go into the, um, the doomer place for sure. And have found myself struggling with that a lot. Um, and then, you know, I can go also go to the head in the sand place. Um, and I think it's as likely as not that we're like knee deep in, in collapse and, um, you know, it's the kind of thing where you look back and be like, oh, wow, that's that was well on its way in, in 2022. Um, and at the time, we're just kind of looking around thinking like, why is all this weird shit happening? Um, but I don't know. Um, and there's a there's also the part of me that thinks like, well, maybe this just limps along for like a really long time in ways that I can't uh, anticipate um, or that there is. And I'm not talking about like a whiz bang um, tech solution that solves everything, but just kind of limps along more or less kind of okay. And maybe there's some improvement here and like, I don't know. Um, so I try to cultivate being agnostic on, on the question um, of what's going to happen. Um, and, you know, more just focus on um, the, 
what I think is important, um, you know, just in life in general that I see, uh, you know, is missing. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, community is, is missing. I think a lot of connection is missing. I think the way um, that we live is, is really alienated and disconnected. Um, and so to, to, to center that, you know, to center a more, um, you know, way of living is more harmonious with other people um, and, and, and the earth we live on, like, regardless of what happens next, that's just good to do. Um, and so that's where I try to put my focus because, and, you know, and, and, and again, try to not to get to um, in the space of trying to anticipate well, what will it be or where, where are we at? Are we going to, you know, run out of oil? Is there going to be, you know, tribal warfare everywhere? Like, I don't know. Um, and, you know, I don't have the, um, if I did know, I'd be full of shit. <laughs> We're bad at predicting the future. Uh, maybe I should go next because I mostly agree, I think, with Nathan um, with a sort of agnostic attitude in which I try to embrace uncertainty and pluralism and uh, being prepared for a wide variety of contingencies. Um, I think my general theory on planning is that it must be done at drastically decreasing resolution or levels of detail once we start speculating like even two to three, six, 12 months or more into the future, and probably much more than ever right now because the rate of interaction and uh, of uh, different economic and political developments right now is so rapid. There's been sort of an exponential growth in um, human activity. And if we look at how things have changed over the last even the last few decades compared to all of history before then, or if we look at the last few hundred years compared to all of history before then, we see an exponential curve. Um, so things are really moving quickly. There's a lot of uncertainty, but we do need to think about, talk about, and prepare all sorts of opportunities and risks, um, including the risks of um Total collapses where uh, social and political structures um, collapse so badly that there's a great risk of, say, the, the roving warlord mentality taking hold in powerful subgroups or subcultures, etc. And to me, the answer to that is generally, you know, I'm, I'm always going to promote developing an inclusive and compassionate culture, but that's a... Uh, that's uh, looking past this general subject of, I guess, of optimism versus pessimism. So we can talk about that later if it shows up. But for me, one of the main wild cards here is we're looking at uh, energy systems as they've been, the fossil fuel economy gradually tapering off or falling off a cliff um, at the same time that we're trying to develop different types of renewables that will make up for some, but not all of that. And at the same time, we all see um, probably at this point many uh, news articles about uh, fusion, nuclear fusion reaction uh, developments, which could actually be going somewhere. And to me, that's really interesting because it's a huge wild card. And I don't see it as a panacea. I see it actually as this huge wild card, which would dramatically ampl amplify a bunch of opportunities and risks, 
mainly perhaps because of its very deep association with the uh, predominant economic forces, with governments, with big industry, etc., with centralization. So for people that uh, advocate progressive decentralization and localism, um, I think it's important to be ambivalently interested in whatever does or doesn't happen with uh, fusion technology. Just to, just to interject, I just brought it to my mind real quick. Uh, I, I did a poll a while back of like, you know, two axes of centralization and high, or, you know, higher low centralization and higher low energy future. Just kind of see what people thought was going to be the case and, and, and what they hoped would be the case. Um, and I think I remember that um, it was pretty split on, um, it, it, was, it was pretty split down the middle, but when people say what they desired, uh, it was split between um, decentralized high energy and decentralized low energy. And I think the, I think the thinking was exactly what you're saying, Greg, of, well, more energy could definitely, if it was used wisely, could be a great boon. Say we could reach the activation threshold to recycle, say, high tech you know, metals and, 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 and other things, um, which could help us close, you know, create closed loop economies, but can also lead to more economic and political centralization and authoritarian, you know, control, uh, you know, whereas the decentralized low energy, there's, of course, the risks of just a lot of people dying uh, due to just, you know, you know, lack of lack of food and, and heating or, you know, uh, various other things, but it, it could also perhaps afford uh, a little bit more freedom, you know, uh, kind of in a localist sense. And so it was, it's, it's, that's a very interesting, we can, we can go more down that track in, in a while, but I just wanted to flag that, that it's an it's interesting kind of. Can I tack something on very briefly? Um, part of the uh, uncertainty here is, is what are going to end up being the startup costs of fusion reactors if they do succeed like small fusion reactors is that something that might end up being compatible with local or regional organizing forces at fairly small scales versus the massive bureaucratic central centralized forces that dominate the global economy right now right all right um richard ellie let's go next yeah, I have I have some um, ideas here. So I think there's a couple of you know interesting um, thoughts. We're talking about energy. We're talking about sort of centralization, politics, government, business. Um, but there's other things that are maybe more uh, immediately tangible, right? So like water and condition of ground. And when we think about collapse, I mean, the system, you know, the systems that we rely on are, are not just going to vanish like tomorrow all at once. In, in some kind of crazy blaze, right? There's um, more like what we'll see is what we've you know been seeing, um, which is disruptions. And the question then is, what happens next? Do we replace what was disrupted with something else? Does it completely vanish? Is there an innovation? So I think a lot of the um, the sort of unknownness of what will happen and come to actually pass is based on on that, right? Like our resilience and our response across the scale. And so one thing, you know, that I'm, um, I guess I feel encouraged by this. I mean, you know, we all sort of have a, a ambivalence about uh, government, especially in the, in the U.S. today. <laughs> but um, but there's a lot of people who literally know how to do a lot of really technical work. Right. And they're, you know, probably not going to vanish anytime soon. 
Um, so there's always going to be a lot of responsive ca capacity. And I think that when we think about like, um, you know, uh, the just the, the raw fear of like, oh my God, resource collapse, right? Like we just automatically assume that we're back in, you know, the like prehistoric time. <laughs> and and that's probably not going to happen. It'll be more like, oh, something here, there's, you know, energy blackouts that are starting to happen in one location. And so we kind of have to allocate, right? It's more of a, a load problem and how well do we do that, et cetera. Um, so, you know, I, I think that when, when sort of I think about like what the strategy is that somebody should be thinking about, it's like, what is your level of dependency on really robust or not robust, right? But like really like entrenched and, and like complicated structures because that might not, like if there's, you know, multiple failure points and probably one will take one out at some point, that's the whole supply chain problem. Um, so if you're thinking about like yourself, right? What do you really need to survive? You need warmth enough, you know, to, to get through like cold winters if you're in a place like that and you need food and water. Um, and to the extent that like local environments can support that, I think people are, relatively okay. I don't think we know that. I don't think we know how to, to go kind of set those things up. And of course, looking at climate, it, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to know how that might all change. Um, but really, I see a lot of, you know, reason to be kind of encouraged that we're moving towards different philosophies uh, at, at a scale that's sort of like really surprising in a speed that's, you know, kind of, um, might be sufficient <laughs> to get some like beachhead set up in advance of the kinds of things we're talking about. Nice, nice. Yeah, I, I, I really the model that when you're talking brings to my mind is this, the anarchy model of systems change, where you have some kind of uh, release. Or it's called release collapse, however you want to put it, and and how, how you're putting it is kind of like there's there's some kind of or some kind of situation, and then and then it's like, how how do you adapt? Um, you know, how do you reorganize? Um, and yeah, I I just wanted to put in. I I kind of I I prefer. I would much prefer a situation where it's more of a stair step. The current system cannot maintain itself. Uh, you know, parts of parts of it kind of become dysfunctional, and then we have time to adapt before the next. Um, I would prefer, you know I think all of us would much prefer that to kind of like you know a doomsday <laughs> scenario. Um, but yeah, so Richard, do you want to you want to jump in? And, and... Yeah, you know it's it's not funny, ironic, but just I've been focusing on the cultural piece, like really sensitive to our culture, not really feeling a part of it, um, having a lot of inner spiritual experiences when I was a kid, and how that kind of oriented me towards a world that I, I felt a sense of oneness and connection. Looking at the world, yes, there's community but there's brokenness. So I've always engaged that. And I've just seen like the fact that we have accepted, you know, 30,000 kids dying of preventable disease every day globally. It's, if you think about it, we've just grown accustomed to it. So my perspective, when I started doing anti-nuclear organizing in the early eighties, I think we've been, we're in like a slow apocalypse. So it's a slow apocalypse. It's this kind of ongoing thing. Now it doesn't mean that you know, I'm freaking out. But what it, for me, the way I have related to that is build community. So, you know, while guns and ammo might be good for an individual and a family, if everybody on your block gets guns and ammo, what does that mean? So I've been focusing on neighborhoods, like how we can grow more food, how we can get people to build a new culture. 
So the culture we have, I call it a culture of separation. It's the belief that we're all separate, separate from each other, separate from nature, but it's really a materialistic perspective on life. It's a lie to me. It's propagated. And that's why we're in this slow apocalypse, because that kind of cultural value, which focuses on primarily on money, on power, on dominance, on centralized power, on centralized you know, economics, it's all part of the same system. And it seems to me that its logical kind of direction is a global authoritarian rule. That's where it's headed. COVID was just the beginning of this process. Now, does that mean I'm a prepper? No, not really, but I've been probably prepping my whole life, like culturally and spiritually preparing uh, to just understand the difference between the culture that we have and the culture that I, you know, what I internalize inside the world I want to build. I really have to distinguish it. What's really interesting is that we don't have to go too much into it now, but maybe later on is being in Sri Lanka for the last, for five months this year, as they were in a collapse, I wondered whether that's the canary in the coal mine. In other words, I was like, not, it was not as serious for me in terms of the power outages, the fuel shortages, the diesel shortages, you know, all those things that, that the people were suffering under, um, just the fact that it was happening, it, it kind of really changed me you know, uh, a lot. Like I was experiencing it with them, protest movements, taking out their government, like literally, you know, taking out the presidency, you know, the guy fleed. And to observe that, it just, it really affected me. And to see their response to it, especially non-governmental parts of society, the Sarvodia movement and their infrastructure, how they got people uh, on board on preparing you know, in the sense of and taking care of themselves through methods of sharing and cooperation. That's the cultural piece that I think um, is the hope. So when I came back to um, Hawaii, where my wife and I live, you know, yeah, I think it changed behavior. Like I started thinking about fishing. We near live near the water. I started um, getting to know my neighbors uh, in terms of connecting them around the different food sources that we have, backyard farming, um, looking at building a backyard farming network because there's a ton of it here. So I think we can increase capacity. So that's how I respond to it. I'm almost in this liminal state continuously. So the question of whether I'm an optimist or a pessimist is just irrelevant. I'm just there, you know, wherever that is, it's movement towards something positive. And I just kind of like, you know, just, keep going and try to build a new culture as best we can build the infrastructure to prepare for whatever happens in whatever time frame. but it's bound to happen. There's just no way to avoid a, a culture that has really narrow values of money and power and separation. It just cannot last. Don't know whether it's next it's, year, five years, 10 years, 20 years. Yeah. So I totally, it seems like there's a common thread here of, folks saying that there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, we don't actually know what's gonna happen in what order, in what kind of uh, kind of geographic time frame. Um, but you know, what we can do is we can build resilience, build a kind of regenerative kind of culture starting locally. Um, of course, uh, Greg and Ellie and Richard, you know, you're all kind of involved with building networks. And 
kind of organizational uh, work. And so that, that seems to be kind of a response of like, no matter what happens, even in a you know very affluent society, these things are really important. And we're seeing you know a lot of the, the side effects of that. Hopefully I'm not putting words in your mouth. Um, so, to, so you've all kind of also talked about culture, you know, I was talking about biophysical realities and, and I think it's, we probably can't separate culture from biophysical realities because they, they co-inform each other, but to shift a little bit. Um, so uh, a few, like a week or two ago, I had a recording with um, a Catholic reactionary uh, named Michael Thomas. Uh, he would probably share a lot of the same diagnoses of the unsustainability of our current uh, civilization. Um, but, and he, his critique is basically that things like modernity and liberalism are tied up inextricable from industrialization, um, like industrial technology and technocracy. Uh, and so he sees basically kind of, you know, rediscovering boundaries centers, as you put it, limits. And, and really the only way to do that, I mean, in his mind, it's like Catholicism, right? It's the Catholic, he's kind of trying to revive the Catholic land movement, but kind of very um, conservative. And he's, he's very emphatic to emphasize reactionary, um, kind of a reactionary response to, to kind of our current civilization. Um, so do you all kind of want to respond like like why why what do you think he's missing like what is his blind spot that he's missing other cultural potentials like other pathways besides you know basically you know say feudalism you know or something like that with with a king you know i think he's also you know partial to monarchism with a king and, and very hierarchical kind of societal structures i really want to jump in on this one yeah. because i was actually part of the conversation with Michael and it left quite a sour taste in my mouth. Um, so I think what Michael is missing is like, it's like 2000 years, right? <laughs> like, you know, like we've learned some things and we don't need only to read a book and like all practice the same style of behavior in order to avoid killing each other and like, you know, putting people in Iron Maidens. Um, I think like his, so his strategy of communication was very hostile, right? Like he was, he was using, you know, a lot of really aggressive words, uh, really disgusting kind of like, you know, he brought up like images of, you know, girls that had been, um, gotten surgery for their, to like remove their breasts and the transgender thing. And, you know, just like super like vivid. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and he also refused, absolutely refused to talk to anyone who wasn't Catholic. I, I guess, you know, you were the exception. So to me, this, kind of says everything, right? Like he's not engaging in network-based approaches. He's not actually open and receptive to the people around him. Uh, and that sort of tells me that like what he's doing is not based on what's happening around him, right? Like I think that we have a little bit more negotiatory capacity and, you know, while there might be like, I mean, certainly if, if there were like sort of the kind of the kind of collapse conditions that we're talking about, right? Like instantly there's chaos. No one really knows what to do, but after a little while, like some kind of organization naturally emerges, right? This is what we see after disasters. And basically we're talking about a disaster event. Um, so, I mean, I don't think that we're like, we're, we're like, there's absolutely nothing we can do, right? We have lots of resources around. There's going to be energy for a while. Like, I, I think that 
we absolutely are going to be moving back into, you know, more local solutions just because that's who's around. I mean, yeah. a really interesting, uh, I'll say this and I'll stop talking, but there's a really interesting book that the the Swedish government puts out. Like they publish this every year and it's some, it's titled something like what to do in the event of like war and natural disaster. And it's literally like, we're not going to be able to respond if there's a massive, you know, like thing that happens everywhere. So you need to do these things. Right. And I think that we're just like really not used to doing that. Um, so we're all sort of like, oh God, what, you know, what, what do I need to like learn? My hands are really soft, right? Like, should I learn how to like shoot a gun? You know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyone else want to, want to? I, could, well, Jason, I think I could talk a little bit, just uh, if you don't mind, because I missed that conversation. Um, uh, do you mind sharing just a little bit of uh, what, this uh michael thomas was talking about was he talking about values or was he talking about so something he was else back on so there's um uh um chris mage and the account tradiste forget forget his real name are, are trying to organize kind of a neo-distributism conference um so distributism comes from catholic social teachings uh belloc and chesterton are some of the main kind of you know, intellectual authors of it. And basically the idea is it's kind of a reaction to both um, capitalism and communism. It's basically saying we, you know, we believe in private property, but well-distributed private property. And, and then you can have village economies and you can have commons kind of on top of that when it's appropriate. Um, and he kind of came in and said, well, um, I'm not interested if we're, because was, Chris Mage was talking about how we want to like bring a lot of people to the table, very inclusive, including, socialists, communists, and, and others, and, and, and he was saying, like, no commies, right? Like, like no, no, no socialists, um, you know, that's just, you know, he was just very, being very firm about that. Um, and uh, I guess his view is that um, it would basically, like, they would co-opt the process or something, and, and it, would, it, would, it would stray away from the Catholic values that, that originally formed it. So that, that's, that's where he's coming from. I, I saw those interactions, Ellie, I agree that they were, they, you know, his online approach uh, is very combative and distasteful. Um, I actually mentioned that when I talked to him, uh, his response was that uh, you have to understand where I'm coming from and, and how besieged I feel and my values with modern society. And so he was, you know, he was basically saying like, I know I'm, I'm kind of being a troll online. This is why. And, you know, so like, well, I still, <laughs> I still don't approve of it. Um, but mm. yeah, I mean, if I, I guess if I could say one thing after talking with him, it's that, you know, he has, for him, from his point of view, has very, he has deep philosophical and spiritual reasons for what he does. I don't, I don't know if they're, you know, justifications or rationalizations, but um, there's, you know, he, he wanted to convey in, and I felt a very kind of, um, you know, in, in kind of being in, in a very sincere way that, you know, this is why I do this thing. Um, Anyway, you can, you all you all, you all can watch that recording. It'll come out before this one. Um, but Let's anyway, I want to give Greg and Nathan if you guys want to. Yeah. Well, you know, if I were to, you know, you know, it reminds me of, and you know, I was, you know, in that um, sort of online interaction too, and I've been paying a lot of attention to this sort of debate about distributism because it's super interesting and. You know, it seems to me it comes like, you know, to put it kind of in a broader context, this perspective is one that I would say is like, a, it's sort of like this, um, what's been popularized is 
like Rogers talked about this Benedict option where it's really focused on a, you know, sort of a purity of like, Hey, this is what this tradition is. And we need to make sure to ensure the purity of this because it works. Right. And, and, and so like trying to mix and blend, all it does is sort of dilute what we have, which is a, a full system that actually works. Um, and so really focused on preserving that and not, you know, um, not open to feedback, um, which, you know, if a person, you know, wants to live that way, I mean, I think that that's part of um, my perspective is, um, I guess, let uh, a thousand flowers bloom. If you want to have a localist sort of community that does that, I like, okay, to me, the um, what adaptability is which is what we're talking about. Adaptability is when you are in touch with the contingencies of your environment, you know? Um, and I think that um, ideology and dogma disconnect one in general from the contingencies of your environment, right? You're in touch with um, your own systems of thought. You're in touch with your own, um, you know, your own conceptual understanding of the world, which is fundamentally always at odds with what's actually the contingencies in your environment. Sometimes they're closely overlapped, you know, enough where they can be useful, but, you know, concept is never the same thing as the thing itself. And so the way that we conceptualize and, li you know, and live our mind live in terms of our concepts and our ideologies is always at a little bit of a distance. And if we're talking about um, rapid change, um, then, you know, maintaining contact with, um, you know, the, what's actually happening, you know, seems essential. And to me, a monoculture, so one way of doing things is the exact wrong way to do that. And we talked about um, collapse earlier and, you know, living here, you know, in the middle of the Corn Belt, it's always amazing every year. And uh, yeah, I'm always, I'm always amazed um, that, that, you know, you can just plant a million acres, whatever, uh, unfathomable acres of the same crop and um, just see it all come up and just pokes up. And then it looks like this really, you know, beautiful in a way, um, undeniably beautiful, actually. Like it, it, it's very pleasing in some way, but also it's sort of disturbing to me in another. Um, but it seems to me that that's the most likely sort of thing to collapse, um, whether it's in a cornfield or whether it's in a, um, you know, a homogenous culture um, because it's just one thing. So if that particular thing is the thing that goes wrong, it's, it blows the whole thing up. Um, and so, you know, any sort of uh, rigid ideology, uh, rigid approach, rigid one way um, sort of uh, view seems to me to be sort of inherently fragile Um and at odds with the the, the uh, history of life on Earth. I mean, look, like humans have lived in all environments, you know, in, in, in all circumstances, and they haven't done so with a single, you know, uh, view of the world. They've done so with a bunch of idiosyncratic views of the world. And it's, it's, it's gone on for tens of thousands of years. And um, I think probably will continue to go on in some form for thousands more, likely, I don't know, but it will happen because people adapt to the contingencies that surround them. That's why it will, that's why humans live. We're really adaptable. That's it. Um, not because we have like the best ideas of how the world works is because we adapt to the shit around us. Yeah, just, uh, I guess one note. So I, 
you took the argument further. I, I, I made the argument kind of pushback I made with him was that uh, like kind of the, let, let a thousand flowers bloom. Let's, we don't actually know, you know, what, what is the most adaptable, what's the most, what, what's viable, what's desirable. Um, you know, we're not going back. Uh, there's not going to be a return where we forgot the last 200 years or whatever happened. We're going to have knowledge and technology and various things. And he was very insistent that, um, well, if you're dealing with ecological constraints, it imposes these these kind of cultural constraints. And he was saying, well, you know, Catholicism takes many different forms around the world. So that was kind of his like nod at pluralism. But he was, you know, basically saying like, no, you need to have like family at the center, you know, patriarchal structure. Um, he seemed very convinced of that. I, at one point, I think in a different context, I brought, well, you, you know, you're mainly talking about the post-agricultural revolution. You know, we, we, could, we can go further than that and, you know, open up, you know, uh, history even further than that. Um, uh, anyway, uh, Greg, do you want to you want to uh, answer that? Uh, I probably don't want to dwell on uh, on that much more, but thank you for bringing it up. Um, I I respect distributism and subsidiarity and a number of ideas that have come through Catholicism, as well as also sometimes in other forms and shapes, right? Um, but it sounds like Michael's reactionary traditionalist perspective was very dogmatic, um, kind of fundamental. Well, fundamentalism isn't a term we usually use with Catholicism per se, but, you know, in a more generic sense of religious fundamentals, very dogmatic. And, uh, yeah, you kind of hit on the nail on the head, I think, in a way, Jason. Something that is missing from that perspective is, you know, metaphorically speaking, there's a whole shitload of genies that have come out of bottles that are broken now i think um there's a lot of information in the world even if we like had a the most catastrophic catastrophic electromagnetic pulse imaginable and every hard drive in the world was wiped out and we had a massive conflict conflagration and all written materials were somehow magically uh, destroyed um, still, as long as people are living, there's quite a lot of information and ideas that have been developed over the last several thousand years, and especially the high tech of the last century or two, that is uh, replicable um, so long as there's some resources. And what would happen, you know, um, in a in a very profound reversion to traditionalism, I think, is kind of like. Um, it may be almost equivalent to someone going back in time and, and handing a, a bunch of high-tech tools to some but not all cavemen or hunter-gatherers. You know, that, that sort of the uh, economic, uh, um, the, uh, the asymmetrical economic distribution we have now, which is a reflection of our history of domination culture and violence and taking that... Um, back into some more traditional perspective, but kind of magnifying whichever, such as patriarchal forces, uh, domination forces and bureaucratic forces that some people might prefer, I think would be terribly catastrophic and, and regressive. Um, but I think partly, um, I should try to wrap up. Um, I think partly that kind of perspective, that reactionaryism, is one of the casualties of our culture wars and our political polarization. And that's partly because of modern social media, also mainstream media to some extent, but especially social media polarizes so much. And we have so much of this false 
dichotomy, not just between conservatism and liberalism or progressivism, but on a more profound level between conservation and progress, when reality, in reality, there's got to be a balance between conservation and progress for any living system. And uh, we, we need to see that and work with it and um, develop inclusive culture that, um, that progresses when it needs to, but does have safety, security, and, uh, and conservation of the energy and the resources that are important to each family and to each community. Mm. Nice, nice. Could I make a comment, Jason? Even though I, I wasn't privy to the conversation, I've, I've got some parallel thoughts that might be useful. Sure. Yeah, please. First thing is you guys probably all are familiar with Mondragon, the cooperative model in northern uh, in the Bosque region. Yeah, that was actually started by a Catholic priest in the 30s who was looking at Catholic manuscripts regarding uh, economics and injustice and, and social, Catholic social teaching. So that was the first thing. That's just kind of like a, a fun fact. You know, what's really interesting is I miss this guy, and I'm, I'm sure um, it, this is one of, those, um, one of those things where you've got this imperfect human being, like expressing this in such a dramatic way that it might cause us not to see something under the surface that could be true just because we don't like him. And it doesn't sound like a likable guy, but let me tell you what I've real been- quick, Real quick, I, I really hope you listen to the interview. Um, I still don't think you'll agree with him 90% uh, or maybe 50%, but okay. he's, he's, I found him to be a very, um, in some ways relatable and uh, sympathetic character. Okay. I just wanna put those cards on the table that he, he comes across very different talking face-to-face -face than he does when he's in troll mode online. So I just want to put that. Uh, I got you. Okay. Go for it. Go for it. Mm -hmm. No, no, thank you. Um, yeah, so something that I've noticed about modern movements like regenerative movements for regenerative community is they tend to be still in a postmodern value system or metamodern, post-postmodern. And what I'm what I'm suggesting is, is that a lot of us who have this you know observation of history going from quote traditional culture which has to do with the particular monotheistic worldview to a scientific or a modern view then postmodern postmost modern modernism is that many people who are more quote inclusive on one level are actually excluding the traditional viewpoints when it comes to value systems now, I'm not talking now about prescriptions for family structures or patriarchy. I'm talking about the fundamental values that have that have come about in thousands of years of historical cultural evolution across all faiths, not just the Christian or Judeo-Christian one. Take the golden rule as an example. So the golden rule, somebody could argue if you're more coming from a spiritual or faith tradition, that the golden rule is part of a universal operating system. Like it literally, somehow there's some self-emergent consciousness 
whether it's you, however you view that, whether it's external or internal or collective. But the fact is that it's embodied it in nature. It's embodied within us. Now, a postmodern view is these things are invented by human beings. Like we just create the golden rule um, because it works, you know, treat others as you want to be treated, mutual benefit, that kind of thing. The real challenge is, is that the postmodern view of values of, of uh, cultural relativism is a threat to traditional spiritual and faith views, and they are under threat. And I identify with that myself, even though I am not, uh, you know, a religious person or person of faith. So I could see how that is important. In fact, I believe the fact that we are that entering into commerce, business, organizations in our culture causes us to sacrifice principles of the golden rule or universal love or inclusivity, all these things that have been championed in history underlying religion. I'm not talking about the, the, you know, the organization. I'm talking about these really deep spiritual principles that are universal and still true. Those things are, I consider, part of a traditional view. So in my approach to cultural and community development, I include them, and I'm honest when I do my community work that the values of love, of, of uh, forgiveness, of all these high principles that have been taught and brought down to us that are traditional are still true. And, it's, and, and I do that so that people don't think I'm trying to reinvent something. There's no need to reinvent those. Those part of traditional uh, religious and spiritual teachings are still valuable to build community. And they've been rejected by the secular culture. And that is one reason why we're having this cultural war. Of course, it's cultural war is manufactured and constructed by politicians and other, other leaders to divide us. But this could be a source of, and I use these these general principles as a source of bringing people together. So I, that's what I want to see. I want to see like the regenerative community movements make common cause with the Christians who are into land stewardship. I I don't see them doing that because I believe that they're judging or separating from and lumping all the quote traditional values into this monolithic kind of state. So I've personally been reaching out to some Christians that are like homesteaders. They built some national movements. Many of the, it's interesting. Many of the uh, uh, conservative Christians would agree with this critique that we're describing, they just have a different language for it. So in terms of actual being part of regeneration, it includes an ecosystem of all these different ideas. And I think some of them are excluded from our conversations with the usual suspects. And uh, we need to figure out how to, how to do that. I'm doing my best to navigate that, following the breadcrumb trails into unknown territory, right? But it means that I've got to go beyond my own likes and dislikes and not see people um, monolithically, you know, like, oh, they're Christian, therefore they're Trump supporters, or, or they're Christian, or therefore they're probably not stewards of the earth, or whatever, you know, bullshit you might think. Anyway, end of end of uh, sermon. <laughs> I, think if, I think if we yeah. 
draw back to the idea of what we're here to talk about, which is biophysical realities, right? Like real things around us. Uh, a lot of those problems kind of vanish. I mean, we have a lot of arguments happening because we live in a highly uh, intellectualized context, right? And that's not the same thing as how do I get enough water today? Um, so, you know, really, like, I think if people have that experience, we're going to see more of that kind of like emergence of, you know, negotiation and things that happen uh, or that naturally kind of work and also possibly not that, right? The 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 sort of the opposite approach, which is, you know, violence or, or whatever conflict. Um, but, you know, I, I think that that's kind of like the pro the space that we're in now, but the space that we're going into is, is a little bit more raw. Hmm. Have any of you read the World Made by Hand series by Howard Kunstler? <laughs> so the premise of the book basically is that uh, it's basically like a collapse scenario, like electricity just kind of at some point stops, there's like a war. and um, But he kind of traces out an interesting structure where there's like three different types of communities living very close to each other, interacting with each other. And one is kind of like this more democratic kind of civic republicanism in town where they have like town meetings and various things. One is like a very religious traditional community um, who move in, they start interacting with this community. And then there's kind of like this neo-feudal kind of like this guy, this kind of rich guy who invested a lot of like infrastructure before the collapse. Um, and he basically, he's like a benevolent, you know, feudal Lord where he basically have, has a bunch of people you know, uh, serfs on his land, uh, taking care of things, but he's definitely kind of the, the boss. And, and, and he, it, it kind of goes like how these three communities interact with each other. It's, it's quite fascinating. Um, anyway, I just, I just thought I'd throw that out there. It, it, it might be worth checking out. So, I mean, like from my perspective, if let's say like in your community tomorrow, there was no energy and that didn't change like would do you expect that there would be a war right outside your window like immediately everyone gets their guns and like goes after each other or is it more like oh shit like the grocery store is not going to be refilled like now what right like mm -hmm. you know the transition which we all kind of skip over is the thing like literally what do you do if your environment is one that has a, a critical fail <laughs> and how do you talk to people about that in advance of it happening, right? Because, I mean, I think, as you pointed out, Jason, like the whole thing that we're doing is organization because we don't have systems of, I mean, I, I read I read something recently that basically everybody in the U.S. was on a farm 100 years ago. That was not that long, right? But like we have totally lost all of that infrastructure. So it's not that we're going into a place that's like hearkening back to medieval Europe, which is what, you know, this kind of concept of like theory and, or uh, of theology and, you know, so on, like reminds me of at least, you know, personally, it's more like what, I mean, just how do we rebuild that basic living structure of like, you know, eating food, right? Like, and, and can we do that before and get enough support from our local, you know, our neighbors to do that before we really like kind of need it right now this month? I I, I kind of like to jump in with a um, with a um, kind of like Richard maybe a very very generic um, and milk toast 
half-assed defense of traditionalism. <laughs> Just insofar as, you know, when you, when I, when I heard you talking about, uh, you know, Richard, you know, it made me think about like, uh, sort of like Huxley's perennial philosophy, right? Like this, you know, which essentially gets it that like, there is, you know, there is a reality. There's a way things work. It's there. It's real. It's, it's how the world is. Right. And then we develop all these different systems to sort of like describe that. Right. And that's what all these different religious traditions are and that they exist still because they have in certain contexts worked right there. There's been insight in those religious traditions that have worked, you know, that have been either, you know, accurate enough or workable enough, like they've adhered closely enough to whatever this reality thing that we are in is, you know, that they've sort of continued to um, survive and guide people's choices. Um, and so if we do think about a scenario, like it's just, you know, one of the things that I'm, you know, uh, you know, being on the farm, um, and moving here and just like kind of like learning how to do everything from scratch, um, you know, including, you know, making a living and going to town and having to drive, like do all of this stuff. It's it, like, it's so complicated and spread out and feels so disjointed um, and scattered. Um, and, you know, I've joked around often that I feel like, damn, I need to like invent an entirely new worldview just to make a simple decision about what I want to have for breakfast. Like that's how disjointed life can feel sometimes because, you know, I don't imagine that gets any easier after collapse. So there does, I feel like have to be a common view. Um, I don't think that that common view has to, is one thing. I don't believe that it has, that, that there, there's one right system at all. Like, I, you know, I completely reject that idea out of hand. Um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't many systems that have a lot of wisdom in them about how to live together because part of biophysical realities is resource. That's a big part, but part of it is also like living with other humans um, and sharing and having a common sort of way of being. And I feel like, like tradition offers a lot of insight into like, how do we live together? Um, it, you know, it doesn't necessarily offer that much. And like, how do you, um, you know, rotate cattle to, you know, get the best production out of your grass. I don't think traditionalism, I mean, there are traditions that do that, you know, it's, it's not, not maybe religious traditions, but like, if you talk to people who've been growing grass for a long time, like there's a lot of wisdom there. That's, that's, that's a way that wisdom is, uh, you know, in fact, that's a better way than to read papers about it by far. Um, you know, talk to somebody who's been doing it for 40 years. Um, you know, so there's a lot of ways to learn how this, you know, how this world works. There's a lot of ways to learn, like, you know, different systems that hew more or less closely to whatever it is that this world is. But I think tradition does offer, and is especially around like living together, um, which is, again, that, that that's what it's all going to come down to after, if there is an after, right? Like, um, so I guess that's my half-hearted defense of that as well. You know, I'd like to just follow up just quickly is um, what I was talking about when, when I'm referring to traditional values, I'm talking about the intrinsic values that are required within us for us to actually get people to join forces and organize community itself. That's what mm -hmm. we're missing in a this kind of culture war at the community level. People aren't knowing really that they are divided into these different ideologies. So the challenge of an organizer like myself is I'm dealing with that existing reality 
You know, for example, in Hawaii, you know, they got the history of colonial uh, uh, past. You got the transition from a plantation to a tourist economy where most of the production now is for tourists coming to stay in the hotels. Then you've got the you've got literally six types of you know ethnic groups involved in farming that are divided. You've got geographic division, pretty challenging. So the government itself tried to bring people together to produce more 20 years ago, didn't lead anywhere. There's current efforts to do that. It's a challenge. And the main challenge is that it's really hard to get people to work together. So these values, what I would call these traditional values um, of how to hold space for these kinds of groups and people to work together across these divides, that's the key. That is, I believe, the most important thing. That's what I learned from Sarvodia in Sri Lanka is how do you use what they call, you know, awakening of your personality, your capacity to share, your past capacity to cooperate, collaborate. You have to have that in order to bring these networks and communities together. And that's the level that I've been focusing on more practical. So when I was focusing on like traditional values, I was meaning how can you apply those character traits that are within people that are kind of atrophied to some extent? How can you help people to activate them? It's like going to the gym, you know, working out. You got to build these kind of capacities within people so they can cooperate. And um, I'm like, um, like what Ellie's doing and talking about in terms of bringing community together. That's what gives me hope because I've seen people's capacity to do that, desire to do it outside of a natural disaster. Obviously, when you have a natural disaster, what happens is it triggers this kind of survival mechanism personally and collectively where people open up their hearts and they go beyond all these silos, all these different divisions to, for a time. But then they come back. Then we come back to, say, normal consciousness, which to me is like, abnormal consciousness, but say it's normal consciousness, which is to be in our little bubble. And what I think could be happening is that we're in this kind of perpetual sense of global crises, which could trigger that liminality or that sense of, of kind of uh, a survival mechanism where I, where I hope that it leads more and more people to want to share, want to get back to these basic principles of uh, cooperation and neighborhoods and, and community. And I, I really see that happening more and more, more and more people rec recognizing that you, you just, you know, system reform is not a likely path and more and more people wanna have agency. And um, I think it's important that they are able to do something concretely and practically. And I found that these values, these spiritual values are important uh, in terms of cultivating community. So that's, that's kind of another take on it. <laughs> Greg, I have a feeling um, you're, you're, you're itching to come in, come in. Go for it. Uh, thank you. Yeah, a little bit. Um, yeah, I think that culture and traditions are and always have been mostly artificial, although they touch primary experience. They're inventive and creative, uh, but that doesn't mean that they're unreal, and it doesn't mean that they're not deep. They are as deep, sometimes deeper than language itself. And um, when it comes to attacks against traditions of various sorts or conservatism, uh, 
traditionalists and conservatives has some really good ammunition for being defensive or counterattacking or for for further polarizing because there's a lot of liberal um intolerant intellectual elitism which is not at all inclusive of mainstream society of most humans even today never mind people you know our background where like 90% of people were lived on a farm maybe uh, 150 years ago or less um and many liberal or socialist ideas are very very theoretical very equalitarian and they're all about uh, theoretically flat structures of organizing peer to peer structures one could even say uh, i'm a p2p theorist and i think peer to peer organizing is super important on all levels of activity and different uh, relationships between different projects and communities etc but hierarchy happens except hierarchy doesn't have to be the modern like the modern traditional i sometimes say bureaucratic model whereby uh our, um political institutions and corporations are all structured by this like pyramid of power a uh, top down power of a uh, of a uh, departmentalized coercive authority and this machine like um structure that determines the rules and the outcomes and often does not allow real human relationship and creativity um but hierarchy does happen in nature obviously we're all made of of cells and organs and we are organisms and communities of organisms as ecosystems um there's a lot of hierarchy involved in natural or emergent design um there's also there also needs to be hierarchy and modularity in any artificial design so um you know that's an important thing and i want want to know one more thing quickly uh ellie when you refer to life today being very highly intellectualized i think intellectualized i thought of mediation and i just have to give a plug to my my very favorite short story is the machine stops by em forster which was 1909 but i think incredibly prescient um it's a dystopian tale about a society whereby technology and the cultural uh evolution along with that technology led away towards life being more and more mediated away from primary experience more and more theoretical more and more abstracted and just totally disastrous and it's a beautifully written story and probably a, a tie for the most important thing i ever read mm. pretty pro- prophetic it seems to me <laughs> in many ways um ellie i want to pick up on this string about you know if you know if for example you know the energy grid goes down or 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 you know all of a sudden food doesn't show up in the supermarkets you know what do people do and i'm wondering and and how can we prepare for these con- uh, contingencies you know i'm wondering you know one i think in doomer optimism podcast and land that's kind of what we're trying to do is like have these conversations now start laying the groundwork for for what might come next um but you know we're a tiny 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 fraction of the population you know most most folks you know many folks are just too busy or they're just worried about work and paying bills um or or they're just they just don't care or you know whatever it is um and and so in terms of like just having the skills for example of like oh, suddenly we can't take food for granted we're going to band together community and grow food well you know there's entrenched you know ownership structures of land you know uh, you know are, are all of these ownership structures going to collapse or is it going to 
become more of a neo-feudal situation. And I'm just wondering how you see, like you seem to be pretty optimistic that, you know, we're going to buck up and, but, but it just seems like there's so many leg legacy kind of power imbalances and skill, you know, and just lack of skill sets to be able to live in this way that I, I wish I could be as optimistic as you. And I, and I hope that through these conversations, we can prepare for, you know, for reasons to be optimistic. So I want to hand it to you. Yeah. So here's where I tell you all the good news. I'm kidding. But um, <laughs> I mean, so like, I'm, I don't know if I would say I'm optimistic, but I'm, I'm super practical. Right. So, so like, let's make some buckets. You know, the first one is, um, you know, there's really a catastrophic situation, right? Like, you know, just massive crop failures across lots of parts of the country and the government is overconstrained. The federal government can't respond to everything. And so, you know, we really just don't have food. Um, there's going to be people that die in that scenario, right? So like, I'm not saying that we're not going to see, and I'm not saying that we are going to see, like, I'm, I've been worried for 12 years that that might happen, right? That we're going to just be seeing things that we're not used to seeing in this country. And it's almost impossible to imagine that today. But then I think, you know, this is happening every day in Africa to such an, a profound scale, like it is possible, right? Um, so, you know, not taking that off the table, but uh, but as you you you're laying out sort of like this is the challenge before us, right? Like there's kind of two main things uh, that I think about. I mean, there's literally what it takes to survive to keep your body going, and that's fairly simplistic. I mean, you know, food, water, and shelter, and and like not freezing to death and not dying of heat. And of course, that could be a pretty brutal lifestyle and there's no medicine and so on. And like a lot of people wouldn't really be able to handle that. And I don't know if that's what we're talking about. I doubt it. You know, I don't think everything's going to go offline. Um, but like fundamentally, right, how do you get enough food, water and uh, and and shelter and like heat for your people? Right. And like, is that available in these surround, you know, within walking and kind of mobility distance? Like that's like worst case scenario. And then anything above that, if you did like an analysis of your city is like, well, sure, we could do that, but we would need to have, you know, this much gasoline because we're actually building on the entire region of the state versus within like the, you know, 10 miles around us. Like those kinds of things, right. Are, are like, that's the bottom layer. The second piece that sort of, um, interrupts what is possible, like fundamentally theoretically possible is what you describe is the ownership structures is the existing cultural like orientation towards the system that's creating the problem that's endangering our lives and at the base and like that's like that's anyone's kind of that's like the no man's land right so like i've seen some stuff that really deeply concerns me coming out of Arizona already around water. Um, they're, they're facing sort of water shortages in lower parts of Phoenix. And so what's happening is um, people are buying up land in Yuma, right? Like rural areas right outside of Phoenix so that they can have the water and pipe it into the city. And so, you know, you imagine like, basically it's like, okay, so we've sucked resources from like the third world, the second world, and now the first, like it's you know the the gates are at the it's at the city gates, right? And we're gonna keep doing that until someone turns on the tap and in Phoenix and there's nothing left. Like that's the kind of thing you know I don't think anyone on this call is expecting to put themselves in into, right? Like we you know don't live in a city of six million in the middle of the desert <laughs> when there's water problems like on the news, right? Like that's not a good strategy. Um, but 
these things are going to happen and they're going to happen right up until the the edge probably like according to the current vector that they're on and so i think where we really you know where this conversation really sits is like to what extent can we influence that before it happens because like right now it's okay for a hedge fund to go in there and buy land so that it can it can sell that water from the ag land to the um the the city and totally destroy that land and probably lose all the soil. I mean that that's that's like a sin, right? Like that like it's insane, right? So, you know, the kinds of things that we're used to that nobody really like has stood up to say, "Whoa, how is this legal? How is that actually acceptable?" Like we have to have those dialogue. Like if we're not the boundary line, then who is, right? And like if we don't start a boundary line around this stuff, then as we were saying in the original thread, like it's going to happen because people are literally like experiencing the boundary in their and their physical bodies. Right. So like, I think that, you know, there needs to be some hybrid approach of um, what Richard is putting out there about reaching out and building collaborative networks and building the, you know, the sort of, we know each other, we know our resources, we, we are learning skills. We are just learning how to live in communion again. I mean, like that's a lot of negotiation and things that you need to figure out. But then also not only, you know, sort of building that to like feel good, but also building that to like have a sort of a force for um, protective like uh, uh, action, right? In advance of, especially with with like foreign players coming into a local space because, you know, ultimately resource, and sorry, I'm just like continuing, but, but like ultimately resource and like survival is a very, it's a fundamentally local problem, right? Like if you get food from somewhere else, it's still local food. And the road that it traveled on was still a local truck. Like everything is local, right? So as we face a system that is not able to respond to problems, as we face a higher incidence of problems, we have to think about how we allow others who are not local to come into our local spaces. And the last thing I'll say that there, there was um, a really great precedent that I saw around this in Key West. So after COVID, like cruise ships, you know, weren't running and they saw that their um the river, the 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 ocean water ran clean for the first time in like 30 years. And they were like, oh wow, this is really bad. Like let's let's not let this come back, right? And 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 do the damage again. And so there were like two brothers or something like that who who went and like caught, you know, 2,500, they they needed 2,500 signatures to get something on the ballot. They got 5,000 really easily. And I think it's things like that. Like I was, I read that in an article and I was like, wow, you know, it's never occurred to me to actually try to, to do something like that, you know, and, and what would be the response? I mean, I've seen statistics that like 80% of people are, are convinced that climate change is a serious problem. And like, you know, we're probably just not reaching them because <laughs> we're not trying to yet. Ellie, I just want to throw in one more example of like reaching the edge that's happening right now is with the energy crisis in Europe, deforestation is a huge concern. Like people <laughs> basically like, like nobody can buy fuel wood, right? For their wood stoves because they're worried about heating this winter. Um, I, I heard something about that we're kind of devastating forests in the U.S. South. Um, southeast uh, to make, you know, for the wood pellet industry to send over to Europe to keep people warm. And so this is a case where if a higher density fuel becomes less available and people have to resort to a lower density fuel uh, like trees that, you know, there's concerns that we could just, you know, we, we think we're already devastating forests. I mean, this would just go on, on overdrive. 
Um, and this is, you know, this is one of those wicked problems where it's like, what do you do? Like, what do you do about this? People are going to die if they don't heat their homes. Um, yeah. Anyway, I just want to throw that example out. I, I thought it, I thought it was kind of similar to the Phoenix to the Phoenix example. But um, yeah, I mean, they're like we're in a precarious and un like unbelievable situation, right? Like if our systems that kind of flow underneath to keep everything going stop, there's a lot of overshot, and the really serious situation is like those systems are really at risk, right? Like from like multiple vectors. So you know, I mean, like you can go down to lower level solutions, but it, it has to be in advance, right? Like if you're in a cold environment and you're used to not being aware of that because you have central heat, like that's fantastic. It's an affordance though. And so like, do you have really warm coats, right? Like, right. you know, I mean, the Mongols wore fur, like, you know, these things are very old technologies and, and they don't go, I mean, they don't go out of style. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, that's one thing, like, like prepare yourself, right? I mean, none of us know what's going to happen, but if you don't have like some kind of ability to, to take care of your body yourself, then you, you know, you, you might not make it through challenge and that's kind of like your choice. Um, beyond that, you know, I think that what we really need to set up is like, and this is what I'm trying to, to build the foundation for is like, let's really start managing our resources intelligently, right? Like, I mean, it's, you know, we don't know how much forest there is. We don't know how much water there is. Nobody's really measuring that. And, and if it is getting measured, it's probably really narrowly and it's being put in a database that's on like NOAA.gov, right? And, you know, if you open that up, then you can know how bad things are, right? Like we need to say this is a crisis and we actually have to, to, to like work on this problem as diligently as we build cars and, you know, all the other stuff, right? And like, I think that the reason that that's not happening, and there's two reasons. One is we, we see this as like, like, oh my God, we're going to die. You know, like, it's just going to be this like mass. It's going to be like this apocalyptic, like single event that takes everybody out. And, you know, and it's really easy to see that because like, we actually can't define this. It's, it's an uncertainty and it's a huge risk and it's a staggering risk, right? Like, it's like, you know, it took me like years after college, I got my degree in this like to just deal with the despair of like, how is it possible that everybody like built this system to basically die before I was even born? Like, you know, like, oh wait, as if I'm, how can I be upset about that? Like we have colonialism for 500 years. Like what the, you know, where are we, right? Like, what is this place, you know? Um, and so like, there's the, there's just the truth that like, this is just a bad, a bad design. Uh, and, and then there's the reality that like, you know, it, as long as it, it remains amorphous, it's really hard to get people to look at it, right? It's really hard to get people to say, yeah, I can commit resources to that. And it's also really hard to know what needs to be done. So like, I think that wherever there is optimism and I'm, I'm not sure like what I would say the prognosis is, right? Is it like 5% or, or like 95? I don't know, but wherever there is optimism, it's going to be based on really good, connectivity, the ability to manage resources across a network. So you can like collaborate like trees do to share resources. We have more food here. You know, we can help you out this, this year. You can help us out next year. Like that's how things used to work. Um, and also like, so the coordinating between people and also like the ability to coordinate response to resource collapse and, and resource degradation and resource re regeneration and resource like increase, right? Like, you know, the world 
like as you as you say the this the example that you put out you know we're we're getting rid of more trees in the southeast and, and trees do release uh, like none of the climate models i don't think have accounted for much rapid more deforestation due to yeah. energy uh dense energy rapid decline right like yeah. that was we didn't we didn't anticipate clear cutting yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but also we can also plant trees right and the only reason we don't is because there's no money and there's no land and those are sort of that's based on those like make-believe ownership structures right like i mean technically there's land and technically there, there's money. there is some there is there is some money right there is you know like just a shout out to any uh landowners out there right like uh ask about the conservation reserve program ask about you know things like equip you know go go talk to your you might not want i mean i know a lot of people might be resistant to go talk to your uh local bureaucrat but like um man there is money that you know i got uh, you know um i got a lot of money and planted a lot of trees this year myself um so that's cool. there <laughs> our, our local, um, one of our local food system organizers in kind of like southern appalachia uh sarah day who we had on the podcast uh, she runs accelerate appalachia um all about kind of creating nature-based businesses and things they recently got a 20 million dollar grant or something uh, to basically work with and, and she's been working with much much more shoestring budget up until now and so yeah i mean it, it there does seem to be some shift um uh and, and now it's a matter of you know are we going to use these resources well are we going to coordinate well as as, as you're saying, Ellie, um, we're, we're kind of bumping up a little bit. I think we'll try and wrap up in about 10 minutes or so. Yeah. Um, I guess I want to maybe give everyone kind of final word about um, maybe maybe one, like, do you want to talk a little bit more about kind of what you're doing and what you're seeing that gives you optimism? Um, you know, Greg, I'd love, to talk, love, I'd love you to talk about peer-to-peer. -peer. Ellie, I'd love you to talk about your networking work and, and what you're seeing that's that's hopeful Richard about your you know symbiotic networks uh Nathan you know you working in the corn belt uh with your own farm and you know the psychology of the people around you and and other farmers you know anything that you want to kind of conclude with and uh final final kind of you know expression I can go first um if no one else Greg do you want to I see you were just about to jump in Okay. So, um, yeah, so I mean, what, where I've been networking most recently is in with the bureaucrats, right, with with sort of government and, and I can say that um, there's a lot of like everyone knows what the problems are and everyone wants to solve them, except for maybe like Shell, right, and they, they know what the problems are too. <laughs> um, so like everybody is is looking for a way and it's just really it's a big problem space and it's really unclear. And so I think the people like us, right, who, who like feel sort of like disaffected because we've been thinking about this for so long and it's so absurd, um, tend to say, you know, it's this is just a wash. But I think that we should really think of ourselves as leaders and go across, you know, these lines of thought and also identity, right? Like, you know, work with bureaucrats. They've got money and they've got resources. Work with with companies. Like they have money, right? Like if they, if we don't tell them what they should be doing differently, then how are they going to know, right? Like we really need to, to, to try to, you know, inspire everyone to recognize that this is something that can be um, approached and, you know, and, and like with a really specific ask, right? Like, can you give us some money? Cause we really like to plant trees or something like that. Right. Like, <laughs> I think we could get a lot going that way. 
Um, thank you, Ellie. I agree very strongly. Um, I have a focus on, sometimes I use the term deep adaptation, um, but there's a lot of ways to frame this. Certainly, I've mentioned progressive decentralization. Um, I think also progressive reorganization and uh, my own emphasis being on inclusive organizing which relates very closely to progressive decentralization because i think that inclusive discussions inclusive design and inclusive decision processes tend to decentralize and distribute any excess of power and resources um, and for that community is the key and um I don't think we've touched on this directly, but I do want to note that if the maximum power principle is, you know, something at least nearly equivalent to a law of the universe, I would suggest, you know, um, is it not possible that the uh, power accumulating uh, structures are not competitive individuals, but are actually inclusive communities? Um, and I think that they can do inclusive communities can outcompete competitive communities, especially if we don't lose um, the vast majority of of, uh, of technology and of wisdom we've acquired over many, many thousands of years, um, including even some of the very modern technology. Um, so uh, let's see how to make that happen. I want to give a shout out to the concept of mutual aid networks and um, mutual aid networks, which do or sometimes don't use formal mutual credit systems. And you guys are all probably familiar with this, but a mutual credit system is a system whereby credits and debits all add up to zero and there's no fiat currency. And um, I heard a I got an interesting idea from the experience and also the thoughts of Art Brock, uh, one of the co-founders of Holochain, where he no he's noticed that people, uh, mutual credit systems are very valuable, especially, for, I think, for interactions between strangers and near strangers in a marketplace-like setting. But as people build personal relationships, they stop doing that formal stuff. And I think that might be pretty close to a law of nature. As we grow in real relationship with individuals with families and teams with community small communities up to and perhaps beyond the dunbar number um we we uh stop using the training wheels or the crutches of whatever um uh, technological tools we use to create supposedly equitable interactions um in like uh, mutual credit or the dollar any kind of currency system which of course those systems that predominate now are very extractive and exploitative so i think we can grow in small to large communities very inclusively and <clears throat> um, i'm working for us to develop reversible technology, not dependency, but as long as technology suffices. But it all starts with the foundation of relationships, communities. Nice. You cut out a little bit there at the end, Greg, but I think I think we caught most of that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, uh, sorry about that. Yeah, I, I tried to end with it. It all starts with... Uh, relationships and communities cool cool richard nathan either one 
Nathan, you want to go? You want me? Um, I, I can. Um, so, man, I feel like there's a lot of things to tie up here. Um, so what I'm going to do is go uh, further into Doomer and then um, see if I can uh, talk uh, my way through into optimism. And I might get a little trippy, but and I'll do it quickly. <laughs> Because my mind is really on this. You talked about managing resources intelligently. I'm like, well, good luck with that. Um, like that was just like my mind went there because, you know, we live in a world, you know, like global capitalism. I'm going to be like the, the the hippie you throw out the capitalism as a boogeyman. But yeah, it is um, because what it does and it has done in this entire existence is it utilizes resources, man. It exploits resources and distributes them to like all over. Like it is a resource using machine that is what it is for. It makes consumption go, 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 go. And like, it doesn't want to slow down. It can't slow down. Like that's what it does. It just fucking eats. Um, and so like, that's what you know we're dealing with you know we're dealing with something that is you know somebody you know if if there's a resource shortage here we're going to exploit it over here and 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 you know like we'll you know buy up land and take their water to ship it over here without regard to the people who are there we'll cut these trees like that's what it does like that's what it's designed to do um it's the system um functioning um exactly um as it's built it's inherently exploitive um and so part of this is, uh, is, you know, absolutely resisting that. Um, and, um, you know, here, like relationships, um, community, th- these are ways to do that. Um, but like, again, cat, you know, it's, it so shapes the way that we see the world, right. That we view, you know, our place in it, you know, uh, you talked about survival being a really pretty simple process, which it is, right? Like if it's, you know, if you're really, your back's to it, you just have to eat and stay warm. Um, but can we, you know, as, as people choose, right, in the context of capitalism, right, can we as people choose to be less comfortable, right? Can we choose to, um, to use less when it's available, when it's being sold to us, when we're being told that, 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 that that's what you're supposed to do. There's resources available. They're there. You just have to take them and you maybe you have to pay, like, you know, it creates this scarce, you know, this sense that like, I have to get more, like it's what it does. Um, and so like, we have to wake up from that. <laughs> you know, we have to collectively wake up from that. We have to collectively d- d- see that ideology for what it is, you know, and that, that, that's, that's a hell of a lift, right. And it does, uh, you know, require relationships with one another, does require community, Uh, does require, I think, values that are higher than consumption, you know, capitalism has displaced values, right? Like you can go in and just say, do something fucking shitty, you know, and just say, well, it's just business, right? Like, that's, that's fine. That's, that's what it is. It's like capitalism, you know, kind of like, exerts itself from the need to have ethics and morality. Um, and we need to reassert values. We knew, you know, we, re- we need to reassert that, that, that no doing things for money isn't a legitimate motivation, actually. Um, you know, uh, contrary to, uh, you know, Ayn Rand, which says, you know, like essentially it's the only motivation that's pure. Um, 
So there's a lot there, you know, like, and, and, you know, and there, there's, there's times we have moments, we have opportunities to wake up, like crisis, you know, wakes people up. Like there's moments when, when really bad things happen and you kind of see the world fresh and your concepts are kind of washed away for a moment. And there's these opportunities for connections. Like when you have life crises, like there's these moments in life in which you kind of fundamentally see things differently for a moment. And, you know, those scripts that always run pause for a second, you're like, wait. Um, and so we have to facilitate those. You know, we have to create those, not crises, but opportunities for, you know, seeing things, opportunities for stripping away those scales. Um, and this is not something we'll get into, um, but it is part of, of my whole thing, um, which is I think psychedelic medicines are freaking awesome for this. So that's another med- that's another episode. <laughs> Nathan, we'll get you on to talk about that. Uh That'll definitely happen. That'll definitely happen. Go for it, Richard. Well, yeah. Hey, this has been a been fun. It's been a real pleasure, Jason, to hang out with uh, with you guys and and hear about things that I'm yeah I'm concerned about, and especially community community resilience and what Greg had just was talking about mutual aid. I hadn't really thought about that context for my work, but yeah, definitely definitely relevant. I wanted to leave with, um, well, two things. One is, and I wanted to bring up what's happening in Sri Lanka just briefly and a parable that I think would, you know, was really meaningful to me in the early 60s when they were dealing with a food, they had food crisis back then in Sri Lanka. And Dr. Aryaratne was working in, starting to work in these villages and these communities. He was, uh, he was having a hard challenge, you know, getting these, um, you know, really poor families to send their children to the preschool that the community had built. So what he came up with was he he called it the matchbox. And in the matchbox, he asked every family in a village to put a couple grains of dal and rice in a matchbox. And everybody did that. And they sent all those matchboxes with a little bit of dal and a little bit of rice to the preschool. And they built a community kitchen and now all the parents felt, wow, my kids can go to school, they're going to get fed. And I, I bring it up because it was a simple thing. And at that time, it affected thousands of communities. They just followed that idea of sharing and, and that kind of mindset. So I've heard a lot about that, too. And what I'm passionate about is cultural change. I bring it up because in Sri Lanka, they literally built 150 community kitchens in the, last, you know, in the first five months of the year. And dealing with this current food crisis and they got 600 home gardens and 25 food banks so i'd help them build a national food banking system so they're going to literally they've 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 been able to mobilize people through sharing and collaborating and they've helped to you know provide food collectively for 300,000 families so 1.5 million people in the, in the first 5 months of this year and they did that through their infrastructure, which are this resilient community networks. And I bring this up because it's really kind of kind of giving me a shot in the arm in terms of my own work. And I'm launching the, and I've launched the Symbiotic Culture Lab, which is what it is. And like Ellie, it's for innovators and others that are working in this field, primarily in bioregions to build resilient community networks in different sectors and launched that 
about a month ago, and, and a number of communities were building local food system networks uh, in Florida, New York, um, actually, you know, one in uh, Switzerland, and a number of others, you know, on the West Coast. So really exploring, trying to figure out how to automate this, how to provide tools so that it's not dependent on me or an organization. So I've been really looking at this kind of fractal organizing, but in order to do that, it can't be dependent on me or like a singular personality. It's based on principles. So I've been looking for that for decades. Like what are those principles uh, that are inherently scalable that people can, can do themselves and principles of community collective intelligence? And how can they do that without having to raise money or build a formal organization, but do it through these new distributed networks? And I'm real excited about that. I see the potential for it. And I believe it's possible through our collective work of those of us here on this call. And there's got to be millions of people like us that are really already doing things in their various domains at different scales. I think what's happening is there's like mother nature is like we're responding, you know, in the sense we're like enzymes. Maybe we're helping to bring this all together. And Jason, thank you for offering this vehicle to to start to do that and to continue to you know bring us together and to you know figure it out, adapt, thrive. Let's figure it out, adapt, and thrive. I think that's a good way to end. <laughs> all right, everyone, thank you so much. This is wonderful. Um, I just want to put the offer out there that when people are interviewed on, on Doomer Optimism, uh, we consider them part of the collective, even if they don't. Uh, being part of the collective also means that if, if there's somebody that, if you want to host a conversation uh, with somebody uh, or, or the panel, uh, you're welcome to do that. Just reach out to Ashley or I or, or you know, Tress or one of the other folks. Um, but yeah. The whole point of having, having conversations like this. I thought this was wonderful. So thank you, everyone. Uh, this will be up in a few weeks. Yeah. Cool. See you. Cool. you it's been a delight to Thanks. meet you all and talk with you all. Yeah. Thank you. Are we are we feeling more optimistic? Or more optimistic? I am. Yeah. In the with, middle? <laughs> yeah, talking, talking with you folks makes me more optimistic, for sure. Cool. Right. Glad <laughs> to help. <laughs> Bye. Bye, guys. Thank <laughs> you.